Well, Trump is running in 2024. It is official. What do we think about this? Also, the Senate moves to redefine marriage at the expense of religious liberty and the future of our country. Also, what really happened in the midterms? Was it abortion, Trump, culture wars that turned the wave into the trickle? We will be analyzing all of this and more with our friend Josh Hammer from Newsweek. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Good Ranchers. Go to GoodRanchers.com slash Allie. That's GoodRanchers.com slash Allie. Okay, Josh, before we talk about 2024, I just want to hear your take on 2022. Obviously, as we've heard over and over again, the red wave, the red tsunami did not really materialize. I've already talked about that. You've already talked about that. But from your perspective, what exactly happened? Because there's a lot of different competing analysis from the right about what really kind of caused us to not have the outcomes that we thought we would have. So I've kind of taken all of the above approach to answering this question. And, you know, we're barely a week removed from the 2022 midterm elections, and it was devastating. I mean, there's no reason to try to, you know, try to make a turd sandwich taste any better than it should taste. I mean, this was a very devastating, extremely frustrating midterm. And, you know, one number that I always come back to, Allie, and I'm still trying to kind of wrap my head around this fully, Republicans actually won the national straight up popular vote for U.S. Congress by about four and a half points, 51.5 to 47 percent. That simply did not end up translating. So that number right there should give Republicans at least a modicum of solace. It should give them at least a modicum of solace that the brand is not quite that, that toxic. But obviously race by race and playing the sheer numbers game that ended up not really translating. And there's a lot of blame to go around and there's really no reason why I think we need to kind of pin that blame in any one particular party. So kind of just trying to go through all the parties, I guess that should be blamed for this. Well, one obvious thing is that the Republican Party has a monumental fundraising disadvantage. And mm. many of us mm-hmm. are kind of sounding the alarm on this for months and months. Blake Masters was getting destroyed on the airwaves out in Arizona, Herschel Walker in Georgia. Really, every possible kind of close contest you looked at this cycle for Senate, for governor, mansions, things of that nature. Republicans were just getting destroyed. So the RNC clearly is failing, frankly. It's just straight up failing. We should just say that when it comes to the fundraising game, the NRSC, the U.S. House wing of uh, the NRCC is clearly failing in that respect as well. You know, Senate Leadership Fund and uh, with Mitch McConnell, you know, query whether they were picking all the right fights. I mean, Mitch McConnell was dumping a lot of money to boost Lisa Murkowski, who, to my knowledge, is not even a registered Republican. Perhaps that money should have been better allocated to races like Adam Laxalt in Nevada, Blake Masters in Arizona, place, uh, Dr. Oz, perhaps in Pennsylvania, places like that. And, you know, we one other thing that we can't ignore, obviously, is the elephant in the room. And I suspect that you and I are going to get there a little later in this conversation, which, of course, is President Trump himself. It seems to me like President Trump did not do the Republican Party any favors whatsoever in this election. We should probably just be pretty explicit about that and say it like that. Many of his endorsed candidates ran considerably further behind other candidates. And, you know, there are some competing data points, to be sure. Joe O'Dea in Colorado, who was very anti-Trump, he got demolished. So, again, I'm not trying to pin all the blame on President Trump by any means whatsoever. But at least when you kind of get to certain candidates, like Doug Mastriano is a good example, running statewide in Pennsylvania, just got utterly destroyed by Josh Shapiro. Mastriano was always, frankly, a terrible fit for that particular electorate, but he was Trump endorsed. Even Don Baldock, who I'll be honest with you, I thought might actually pull it off at the end in New Hampshire against Maggie Hassan. He lost by a massive margin. That's a Trump endorsement that query whether it could have gone the other direction there. And, you know, Republicans lost the independent vote, Allie. And that is a really, really sobering thing with historically low approval ratings for President Joe Biden. You know, that first presidential term, the midterm election, the opposition party really should always make gains, let alone when you have 40 year high inflation and an economy that as recently as a month or two ago was formally in a recession. So, you know, if we're turning off independence by that margin and then the unmarried women kind of element you add into this, losing unmarried women by like 38 percent or whatever it was there. There's a lot of blame to go around here. But I think those are kind of the broader buckets, I guess, of where I would start at least to pinpoint the problem. 
Yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to understand how President Biden could have such low approval ratings. Crime is up in many of these cities. Obviously, as you said, inflation at an all time high. Uh, Just the past couple of years of just draconian policies that have hurt people's lives and livelihoods, looking at how our education system has been run by the teachers unions who then are part of the Democratic Party. It's really hard for me to understand how independents could look at those policies and how, especially in every major city in the United States, have only led to destruction. You can't look at a city that's been run by Democrats for any amount of time and see any improvements. You only see negative outcomes. It's hard for me to understand how independents could break for Democrats in this midterm election, considering all of those things. And some people's theory is that we just had bad candidates. It's candidate quality. A lot of people are pinning it exclusively on Donald Trump. I I just don't know. I don't know if that's true. One of the toughest losses for me was Blake Masters. Had him on the show about a year ago, and I was like, yeah, I really like him. I like him. I like J.D. Vance. They're different. They're interesting to me. I kind of like this new crop of Republicans that I think is more appealing maybe to young voters. Um, And yet, I read something in the New York Times. So, you know, take that for what it was. Also, this was from someone who works for Mitch McConnell. Take that for what it was. They said that the reason that they were not funding Blake Masters' campaign, but instead they were directing more funds to people like J.D. Vance was because Blake Masters in the focus groups had the worst scores that they had ever seen any candidate have in a focus group. Now, that to me, it's hard to it's hard for me to believe. But then I ask myself, okay, is he like a commentator's candidate? Is he the candidate of people like you and me who are really online? Or do we have a disconnect from what the non online people are thinking I think apparently so if we're losing independence and we're losing a lot of the people who just are not voting for the candidates that we think are awesome. It's a heck of a question. I mean, it's one of the million dollar questions that I think folks like you and I should be grappling with and our peers in in, in this industry, in this talking head space. Look, I mean, I, I, I guess like full disclosure, I mean, I guess I've said this publicly. I mean, you know, I've gotten to know Blake a little bit. I mean, I got dinner with him last February in Arizona and I, I, I had a nice chat with him and I, I do think very highly of him on a personal level. Having said that, there are, I, I have a lot of friends in Arizona, actually. And what I heard from the ground from even very right wing friends in Arizona was that the master's campaign, besides just being totally outspent, I mean, just utterly demolished on the airways by Mark Kelly, who had the power of incumbency. He has this kind of personal story where he's the astronaut. His wife, Gabby Giffords, was shot famously a decade ago or so. So he, he has kind of a very personal story that tends to resonate with the media in Arizona, and despite his kind of pro Joe Biden voting record. Even holding all of that aside, the Masters campaign, it seems to me, from from the outside, probably could have done a few things basically better. And what I've heard anecdotally from some friends throughout the state, you know, Blake, who's obviously he's an he's an Arizona native. He was born and raised in Tucson, but he's kind of a Peter Thiel, Silicon Valley guy, spent a lot of time out in the Bay Area, Stanford Law School, all that stuff. He didn't really necessarily take his back home, his back you might say his uh, back to his roots, Arizona approach to the campaign trail. And to kind of put like a very fine point on that, I heard anecdotes from some folks who would say that he might kind of walk into a room full of ranchers who are wearing cowboy hats and cowboy boots, wearing kind of like a T-shirt and like tech bro sneakers, which is a kind of thing that like I personally don't mind, um, yeah. you know, living here, living, living here in Florida, I become kind of like a sneakers guy myself. But I mean, you know, if you're running for a statewide office in the state of Arizona, you've got to at least play the part. And, you know, some of that really matters. I mean, something like that, like really kind of local retail politician stuff actually really matters. But I think the basic thrust, the basic thrust of the past two, three years of the so-called new right movement, the national conservatism movement, of which I'm very much a part, the basic argument that kind of laissez-faire dogmatism, free trade absolutism, that a lot of these policies are not the future of the Republican Party. I think that totally sticks. I mean, I think I I, I see no reason looking at the data here to necessarily move away from any of what we have said from the past few years. You know, the abortion issue, which is a huge issue on a, on a substantive policy perspective for both you and I, Ali, that's a that that is a thorny issue. And we're going to have to have some like very serious kind of candid kind of within the pro-life family discussions about the pe- the best path forward for that. But looking at the results in Kentucky, Kansas now, two very kind of red state data points over the past few months, 
you know, we probably should stop putting kind of straight abortion bans, constitutional referenda on the ballot before the people at a bare minimum. We should probably be focusing more uh, within state legislatures trying to pass actual policy as opposed to kind of putting it before the people. I mean, at least kind of small stuff like that. But there is really a there's a lot of blame to go around here. And the one thing that, that we haven't discussed yet is obviously one of the other elephants in the room here and what I see a lot of people thankfully talking about, but we really cannot talk about it enough because it is that, that, that important is the extent to which the Republican Party is just getting demolished when it comes to the mail-in vote, vote by mail, absentee balloting, ballot harvesting regime. And unfortunately, that is the current paradigm that we live in. What the left and the Democratic Party have done is they have seized upon kind of the once a century COVID stuff from 2020, that sordid summer of the lockdowns and the George Floyd riots and all that and all the mail-in voting that became kind of the new normal. And they have now made that exactly the new normal. And in the long run, Republicans have to ultimately do away with that because it kind of defeats the purpose of an election. It really kind of undermines sovereignty in many kind of crucial and important ways there. But at least in the short term, we would be foolish to unilaterally abandon that game. And, you know, as I saw Christina Pushaw tweet, on Monday morning, she I, I think it was she noted that California Republicans in certain districts there on the Los Angeles and Orange County area, at least, seem to have actually used ballot harvesting to their advantage to get elected. So there's at least some element of that that yeah. Republicans must be better on as well. Quick pause to tell you about our first sponsor, and that is Public S. Q. So I've talked about before this parallel economy that I think is being built by conservatives, people who love freedom, Christians right now trying to compete against the woke corporations that are actively fighting against your rights and your values using your money. If you're tired of doing that, if you're tired of funding Democrats by paying the corporations that are funding the Democrat campaigns, you should try Public SQ. It's an app that you download on your phone. You put in your email address and you put in your location and it tells you the businesses in your area uh, that you can patronize to support your values. So if you're looking for a coffee shop, if you're looking for a tailor, if you're looking for a bank that aligns with you and what you believe in, you're supporting your fellow conservatives and fellow Christians, then you should check out Public SQ. Also, you can list your business or service on Public SQ. So it's just a win all around. This is how we compete against woke capital. And this is how we win. So download the Public SQ app that's short for Public Square from the Apple App Store or Google Play. Create an account. Begin your search. You can also list your business for free so your local community can support you. Download the app today. That's Public SQ. Public SQ. I want to talk a little bit more about that specifically in the state of Arizona and what you think went on there and some of the claims about what went on there. But I want to hit the abortion point quickly because I want to make sure that people understand you're not saying to do away with the abortion conversation or that Republican candidates shouldn't talk about abortion. You're talking about a difference between the effectiveness of a measure like um, the amendments that we saw in several states trying to protect the rights of unborn children uh, versus legislation that is passed by the representatives and the state senators that you elect, that that is probably more of an effective thing to do. And I would agree, because if you look at the state of Texas, even the state of Florida, to a lesser extent, passed abortion legislation. And obviously, Ron DeSantis won. Obviously, Greg Abbott won. If you look at the state of Georgia, same thing, heartbeat bill, and Governor Kemp won. And so this is not such a polarizing issue. I mean, DeWine in Ohio also won after passing pro-life legislation. So this is not an issue I think that Republicans need to run away from. I don't think it's impossible for a Republican in most states to sign a bill into law that protects the life of unborn children and then get reelected. It is a little bit more difficult, I do think, as you said, to put a ballot measure before people because, I mean, you are just going to have so much propaganda from Planned Parenthood and elsewhere. Um you know, giving people misinformation about what it actually stands for. So I still think abortion can be a winning issue. I certainly I mean, I'm just glad I'm not a politician. If it weren't a winning issue, I, I still wouldn't be able to not talk about it because I think it's that fundamental. Um, but I, I agree that there obviously like we've got to do a 
better job of messaging or campaigning on it. And I don't know exactly what that looks like because I happen to think we have a lot of pro-lifers on our side who do a really, really good job. I mean, maybe we're just outspent. I'm not sure. Well, we do have a lot of pro-lifers on our side who do a good job. And I'll kind of name one example of that. I think she's a mutual friend of ours who's Lila Rose of Live Action. So Mm -hmm. back in early August, I flew out to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I was participating in kind of a state lawmaker summit for Live Action. There was kind of 50 strategically taken state Mm -hmm. lawmakers basically trying to kind of hear from various panels, a couple of which I participated on about what to do in this post-Dobbs world. And one thing that Lila Rose and Live Action do so well on the pro-life advocacy side is they have these videos. They talk about what actually happens during the course of an abortion. They actually break it down to human biology, to embryology. At six weeks, the unborn child has XYZ, physical, biological, verifiable traits. You know, at 12 weeks, you know, you'd have to like literally strip off uh, fingers and arms, things of that nature, right? Very graphic things. And I guess it kind of gets to the broader point here is that pro-lifers have to actually make the pro-life argument. They yeah. can't just talk. They can't just kind of make this kind of blanket assertion. Abortion which is, is bad. Yeah. Yeah. They, you can't just say abortion is bad. You can't just say life begins at conception. Both those two things are true, by the way. But you have to actually make the argument to yeah. get in there in the weeds there. And that is what I'm still waiting for. A lot of our most articulate advocates, you know, folks like Josh Hawley. I mean, it would be really nice if we had some of these incredibly bright pro-lifers really kind of get yeah. in there and start leading with some of these hard hitting, biologically yeah. grounded arguments. You know, I think someone who actually does a good job, a Senator Lankford from Oklahoma, like he is one of the most consistently and unapologetically, I would say, pro-life advocates. And I appreciate that. And he does it in a way that I think is compelling. Um, But I agree with you. I mean, like Republicans do in so many ways, whether it's about marriage or whether it's about abortion, they run away from the substance of it. Like they will get on the most fringe part of the issue And we'll say, well, it's really about religious liberty when it comes to marriage, or it's really about not wanting taxpayers to fund it when it comes to abortion. Well, no, it is about the fact that uh, abortion kills a human being and human beings should have human rights and they should be protected in that way. Um, And then, of course, I want to talk a little bit about the so-called Respect for Marriage Act in just a little bit. But I do see Republicans are just scared. But I think that if you look at the state, of Florida, if you look at a lot of the wins that we did have, um, that really Republicans should not be running away from these so-called culture war issues, what are really moral issues. Actually, I would say in a lot of cases, the culture war wins elections. You're talking about a purple state, what was a purple state in Florida, being completely transformed by someone who was primarily, I think, a culture warrior. Obviously, he did other great things, too, but he was one of the only, it is probably one of the only Republicans willing to go against the LGBTQ lobby, and he won. So I don't know. What do you think about that? What do you think about the whole Republican instinct to retreat from the culture wars. Actually, before I let you answer that, there's one thing that I just remembered that I wanted to say, because I'm not sure that I agree with it. So you can lump this in with your answer to that question. So two people that I respect a lot, that I get a lot of information from, that I, you know, I really like, Jack Posobiec, Charlie Kirk. One of the things that they said was maybe one of the reasons why we did so poorly in the midterms was because Lindsey Graham put forward that ban on abortion after 15 weeks. And I just don't think I agree with that. I think a lot of people didn't even know that that happened. And secondly, I'm not sure if that's how we should be thinking about abortion legislation. I think, I mean, I'm not like uh, an unconditional defender of Lindsey Graham, but he probably put it forward thinking, oh, this will show how radical Democrats are on abortion, that they won't even restrict abortion when the baby we know is capable of feeling pain. So I don't really want to blame Lindsey Graham for putting forward what we should consider an improvement on current legislation when it comes to abortion. I don't know. You can tell me what you make of all of that. Yeah, so I'll take the latter first and then go back to Florida and DeSantis and all that. So when it comes to the Lindsey Graham legislation, I, I, I was kind of a mixed thoughts on it. I don't recall particularly strongly tweeting one way or the other or arguing against it. Obviously, the ideal policy is that, you know, it, 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 and frankly, I've argued that this is the proper interpretation of the, port, of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. The ideal policy is ultimately a full on national abortion ban, and we should not mince words in saying that. 
you know, the analogs between the abortion issue and the slavery issue um, are, are myriad. I mean, they both involve kind of the willful deprivation of humanity, of, of, of human beings. They both involve uh, doctrinal constitutional issues of so-called substantive due process. The, the parallels are remarkable. And, you know, just as Abraham Lincoln famously said that this country cannot long survive half free and half slave, so too can America ultimately in the long term not survive where unborn children are, are, are free to live in some states and will be snuffed out of the womb in other states. So that very clearly is the long-term goal. Uh, you know, the only thing that we're talking about here on this show and uh, this kind of post-2022 midterm elections conversations that many of us are having is how slowly we need to kind of plod to move forward. And, you know, it's worth bearing in mind, obviously, that Roe versus Wade, tragically, of course, took 49 years to be overturned. And these victories are not ultimately won overnight. On the, on the specific merits of Lindsey Graham's 15-week abortion ban, one thing that's worth noting is that Marco Rubio, who actually was one of the most vocal, perhaps the single most vocal proponent, um, the kind of the co-sponsor of Lindsey Graham's 15-week national abortion ban bill, he demolished Val Demings here in Florida, won statewide by 16 points. Val Demings in their, I think they only had one debate, and in her one debate against Senator Rubio really tried to pin him down on the abortion issue, and uh, the, the voters of Florida clearly were just simply not having it. Um, I, I, I think I saw some polling out of Arizona that kind of indicated that Blake Masters's um, abortion polling specifically, that Arizonans felt more comfortable with him as their candidate, given the fact that this 15-week ban was, was going to be the party norm. But, you know, to go back to what we were just saying about kind of pro-lifers have to make the argument, here's what I would like to hear pro-lifers say, Republicans say, when it comes to the 15-week issue. They should say that 15 weeks is literally still a longer gestational period than the abortion regime in no less secular a country than France. France yeah. literally has a 12-week abortion cap. All those European countries are typically in the 12 to 15-week range. Mm -hmm. America, at least in the Roe era, is a legitimate outlier or mm -hmm. was a legitimate outlier up there with China, North Korea, Vietnam, Cuba, the worst of the worst human rights offenders there. So th these are the kind of arguments talking about kind of fetal heartbeat, kind of the, uh, what, what happened the unborn child comparing to kind of other countries around the world. These are the kind of arguments that I really just think pro-lifers need to make a little more often. I didn't really hear any of that when it got to the 15-week ban. But all that to say that I, I don't think that that issue particular or that specific legislation, I should say, particularly hurt Republicans. I just don't really buy that, to be honest with you. When and, it gets yeah, to, and Florida oh, just went from 24 weeks to 15 weeks. It's still 15 weeks in the state of Florida, right? It is 15 weeks right now. We'll see what the legislature does when they get back into session. I, I'm cautiously optimistic, especially now that Florida has super majorities, actually Republican super majorities in both houses. I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll get a better law, but we'll see. And, you know, on, on the question of Florida, which was the other part of your question there, Ali, I, I, I agree with the framing of your question. I, I, I wrote multiple columns over the past year or so, uh, one in the aftermath of, of Gun Youngkin's victory in Virginia, one kind of in, in the midst of Ron DeSantis' fight against the Walt Disney Company, basically saying that Republicans, you know, seize upon the so-called culture war issues and cruise to victory. And what's interesting, actually, Ali, this is a point that I have that I've seen very few talking heads on our side make, actually. If you look at the issues that Republicans actually ran on in the 2022 midterms to the extent they ran on issues at all, it really was not the culture war issues at all, was it? I mean, there was a little bit about abortion, but they were really kind of just shooing that away. There was a lot of talk about the economy, jobs, inflation, things like that. Crime, I, I guess, to the extent that that's a, that's, that's a cultural issue. But you really didn't hear a whole lot about kind of the threat of wokeism in general. You know who was the one candidate this past cycle who talked about the threat of wokeism? We'll fight the woke on the beach. We'll fight the woke here. Well, that was Ron DeSantis, the guy who just won the once purple, now bright red state of Florida by 20 points. Um, so I, I totally agree with the framing of your question. If there's one policy issue that I think we would most closely associate with Governor DeSantis, it is the COVID issue. But even the COVID issue itself, holding aside all of his various culture war fights against Disney, critical race theory, LGBT, all of that, even COVID was, and I guess to a lesser extent, kind of remains somewhat of a culture war issue. It's not simply an individual liberty issue. The key insight about COVID since day one was that the ruling class, kind of the uniparty neoliberal elites in both parties seized upon the vaccine mandates, the passports, the COVID lockdowns, all of that to kind of enact a de facto class war of sorts against the deplorables, against the people who have to work in person, who have to go to their jobs if they were kind of crap out of luck, if they even had jobs at that point. You know, the laptop class, the professional managerial class never had an issue with COVID. They could just work from home from the get-go. So I think Governor DeSantis realized from the get-go, along with a you know, handful of other shrewd 
politicians throughout the country that COVID was also kind of a culture war issue to an extent there. And that was why he was so passionate, actually, about using state power in Florida to override even private sector companies that would implement these COVID vaccine mandates because he understood that that was an extension of this anti kind of deplorable pro ruling class culture war element. Yes, yes. And obviously, you and I are on the same page there. There was some debate within conservatism when the whole Disney showdown went down about whether or not the state should use its power to kind of go against corporation. Obviously, uh, you and I agree that that is within the purview of the state. And actually, it's really they're really the only people or the only entity that can. Um, And I don't know what a Republicans or a conservative's role is if it is not to protect the rights of its people against all kinds of institutions that seek to infringe upon them. Okay, if you value your online privacy, then you should be using a VPN. You should be anonymizing your internet activity so that all of your data can't be sold to third parties by your internet service provider. They have access to literally everything that you say and do online as well as your location. But if you have a VPN like the one from ExpressVPN, then all of your internet searches and your activity and your location are anonymized. That's the VPN that I use. I really like it because it's super easy to use. All you have to do is download the app. It can be downloaded from one account on five different devices. So you're paying the same rate for up to five different devices, which is awesome. And it just runs in the background. It doesn't slow down your uh, internet speed or anything at all. And I just like knowing that my information and my location is protected. So secure your online data today at expressvpn.com slash Allie. When you do, you'll get three extra months free as expressvpn.com slash Allie, expressvpn.com slash Allie. All right. Speaking of culture wars, Trump Last night, announced his presidency, hit all kinds of culture war buttons. Uh, let's play a quick clip of him saying that he is running in 2024. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for president of the United States. All right, Josh, I am having deja vu. Not just not just in the announcement, but also just in the conversations that are happening on Twitter. I'm like, oh, my gosh, we are talking about the exact same things and the exact same way that we were in 2015 and 2016. I mean, what's your thought on this? Well, Ali, I'll be very candid with you. Um, I did not watch this at all last night. I actually, I, I do, I, um, I, I do, I do live here in Florida. I was actually at the Florida Panthers versus Washington Capitals hockey game um, with, with with a friend. So I would, I was kind of following on Twitter a little bit. I saw some clips this morning. What I heard from any number of friends who did watch it is is that the former president really just didn't look or feel particularly inspired. That he was kind of. Um, um, you know, he was reading off a script, he was reading off a teleprompter, it, 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 that he was kind of trying to like recapture some of the old magic, but it didn't necessarily feel like it was fully there. Ivanka and Jared obviously were not there. I heard that Don Jr. actually was not there, um, which is really interesting in and of itself. I'm not entirely sure what to make of that. And, you know, what I heard from some friends, even actually who were there in Mar-a-Lago, who texted me, was that there were many in the crowd actually who were, seemed like they were getting bored, that the speech tended to kind of drone on and on a little bit. What another friend texted me this morning was that she kind of compared this announcement to the Tom Brady presidential announcement. You know, it's like coming back for one more year, trying to put the band back together yeah. a little bit. Um, look, I personally at this point have no small dose of Trump fatigue. And I say that as someone who thinks that Donald Trump was the greatest president of my lifetime, and it's not a particularly close call. And I would gladly, I would gladly pull the lever for him in 2024 if he ends up being the Republican presidential nominee. But uh, right now, especially in the aftermath of the bloodbath that was the 2022 midterms with the Georgia Senate race still on the line here, I mean, we should look at the serious possibility that Donald Trump could be indirectly responsible for costing Republicans not one, not two, but potentially three U.S. Senate races just in the state of Georgia, as far as kind of his timing and his various antics are concerned, going back to uh, January 21. Um, of course, and, and and now this upcoming runoff between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. So 
Um, I, I'm not sure what else there is to say about it. I mean, based on what I read about his speech last night, uh, as far as kind of the, the bucket of issues are concerned, it seems to be kind of a focus on in many ways and kind of the 2016 issues, a large focus on immigration, build the wall. And to be clear, I'm a staunch border hawk. I've I've never understood the argument that there should not be a wall. It's really just common sense to me. I totally support yeah. that. But there's been a lot of new issues that have emerged onto the scene since then. I mean, was he talking about critical race theory? Was, was he talking about woke capital? Was he talking about kind of ESG and the threat that that poses? I didn't really hear any of that, to be honest with you, uh, or at least what I read uh, when I was reading my recap articles this morning. So I don't know. Yeah. But I, I, I definitely have Trump fatigue right now to an extent. And I suspect that I'm not the only one out there who has it. Yeah, he did talk a little bit about CRT. Um, one thing that I I did <laughs> I did like that I saw that he said I saw it on Twitter afterwards because I like you was not watching this live. Um, he said that he would put and we're gonna play the clip. He would put um, not just drug dealers in jail, but he would actually give them the death penalty. So here he is making his case for that. But we're going to be asking everyone who sells drugs, gets caught selling drugs, to receive the death penalty for their heinous acts, because it's the only way. Okay, so this to me kind of reminds me of when he first started talking about building the wall and not allowing certain people in from certain Muslim-majority countries. When he first started saying that, everyone was like, are you kidding me? That's so racist and xenophobic. And then when it came to the wall thing, a lot of people kind of started seeing the logic in that and that it made a lot of sense. And I think initially when people hear that drug dealers should get the death penalty, they kind of shrink back and say, oh, no, I don't like that. But then when you think about it, okay, we're not talking about weed dealers, but if you're talking about someone who has been dealing fentanyl, who is responsible, especially like these kingpin drug dealers responsible for the deaths of thousands of people, especially like accidental overdoses when it comes to fentanyl and things like that. I mean, I actually don't really know what the argument is against the death penalty. And that's one thing I kind of like about Donald Trump is that he's willing to say things like this that I have not heard, at least recently, any Republican say. I don't know. What do you think about it? I mean, I will be the first to say that I'm an enthusiastic supporter of the death penalty for drug dealers. So, I mean, you know, Ali, if I can kind of just open up to your your listeners and your viewers on a personal level. Um, One of my cousins with whom I was very close about five years ago now, December 2017, tragically overdosed from fentanyl. And, you know, I have any number of stories from friends, tragically, who have similar tales to tell. And, you know, you bet that I would prefer that for a modicum of justice that the person who who killed, we should just not miss words here, who killed my cousin be executed. So this is exactly the kind of policy that I for years have thought is the kind of thing that Republicans should run on. But, you know, it's worth noting that as president of the United States, you know, President Trump passed two major pieces of legislation into law. There was the 2017 tax cut and there was a 2018 First Step Act. Well, the First Step Act, which is really kind of the brainchild of Jared and Ivanka and to a lesser extent, maybe Kanye West and Kim Kardashian, um, this was this was a jailbreak. I mean, this was kind of an anti-law and order bill. In fact, there were very few people actually in kind of the conservative commentary who came out opposed this. It passed the U.S. Senate by a margin of 88 to 12. Actually, President Trump signed it into law. I was one of those handful of people that said this is a very bad idea. Some some of your Blaze TV colleagues, I remember folks like Daniel Horowitz and, if I recall, Steve Dace were were big critics of this legislation. So, you know, at least prior to the very bloody summer of George Floyd in 2020, where he kind of took a slightly different tone, Trump's presidency didn't necessarily reflect this, did not necessarily reflect this extremely tough kind of law and order sentiment that, you know, I and others have been pushing for many, many, many years now. But I I agree with you that Trump in many ways has this unique ability to say things that may seem kind of superficially to be kind of outray or outlandish. But if you actually think about it a little more, really do have a lot of heft and a lot of kind of uh, gravitas going for them. And I guess more generally speaking, you know, the issue with President Trump never was necessarily the actual things that he was talking about. I mean, in many ways, his approach to immigration, his approach to China. I mean, he was more transformative on China than any president since since Richard Nixon went to visit Chairman Mao in the early 1970s. He fundamentally reset 
the U.S.-China relationship, and I would argue for the better. He obviously was an incredibly dynamic president when it comes to the Middle East. I mean, a once-a-generation peacemaker. Who would have thought President Trump peacemaker? Well, he literally proved that to be the case. So there's so much to applaud in general, um, really, about the various kind of policy initiatives that I think he stood for. And as we saw in that clip right there, in many ways that he is still kind of pushing. Rather, the criticism, I guess, is twofold, at least that, that I can immediately think of. One is, can he actually execute on this? And that's kind of why I mentioned the First Step Act. You know, when it comes to President Trump, there were a lot of criticisms about his personnel decisions. He oftentimes was not hiring the best people. He oftentimes was not firing the worst people. He oftentimes was letting people such as, you know, Kanye West on the First Step Act have way more influence over policy than they probably should have had. And I, I have no indication that he has necessarily learned any of these lessons from his last go around. And I guess the other criticism of President Trump and kind of directly implicating his his potential ability to actually execute these policies, to actually implement this vision. The other bucket of criticism is, can he actually get over? Can he get over the 2020 election? And, you know, I have publicly said many times I have used the word stolen. I've referred to the 2020 election as stolen when you combine all the dubiously legal mail-in balloting initiatives in states like North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and so forth, when you talk about kind of the New York Post, Hunter Biden story, the one in six uh, Joe Biden voters saying they would have voted for Trump if they known of that. If you combine all of these issues above, I have no problem referring to the election as stolen when the actual margin was 40,000 votes trickled across four very key states. But and here's the key point. Can Trump actually learn from that and then chart a path forward to implement kind of the relevant kind of election related reforms that we were talking about a little earlier to actually prevent this from happening again, rather than just kind of beating the drums about stolen election, Brad Raffensperger in Georgia and all of that. And I have very little in the way of evidence that he has learned those relevant lessons in a way that would allow him to implement even those kind of yeah. election re related measures as well. Yeah. And one thing that I that I think proves your point that he either can't get over that or just can't get over himself is his reaction to the reelection of Ron DeSantis. Everyone talking about Ron DeSantis being the 2024 pick for Republicans, I think probably rubbed Trump the wrong way because he sees himself as a shoe in He sees himself as the Republican Party that he trans, which he did transform the Republican Party in a lot of way, uh, a lot of ways. But I think he overestimates uh, the cohesiveness of the Republican Party behind him and just how important he is now. So he released these statements, multiple statements, very strange statements on Truth Social about Ron DeSantis, basically how he made Ron DeSantis, also made comments about Casey DeSantis really being the one who runs his campaign, saying he said previously that there were some things that he would reveal about Ron DeSantis if he runs. There was a Trump lawyer. We played it on this show uh, last week who said, you know, it would basically be career suicide for Ron DeSantis to to run. And then also Trump said some weird things about Glenn Youngkin. What? That was one of the weirdest things I've ever seen where he separated Youngkin's last name, Youngkin, and said, sounds Chinese. What? What are you doing, dude? What are you doing? So I do wonder if his kind of calm demeanor last night, which a lot of people saw as uninspired and boring, um, was his attempt to be disciplined, his attempt to reel it in and to say, oh, OK, people like Ron DeSantis because he they you know, he pushes good policies, wages the culture war, but isn't quite as bombastic and unpredictable as Trump is. Maybe that was Trump trying to say, oh, you know what? I can be like that, too. I can take off my downsides, whatever it is. Um, but I don't know. I mean, what do you think about this fight? And this is kind of what brings me back to 2015, 2016, because I already have people. I really haven't said anything about it. Definitely not before the election, because I actually thought that, you know, I don't. I didn't want to do anything that could even potentially hurt DeSantis. And I just felt like pitting them against each other. That's just not helpful before DeSantis's election. But I haven't really said anything about it at all. And yet I'm getting messages in in my Instagram inbox from people saying, why haven't you overtly supported President Trump yet? Why haven't you said anything about this? You know, I always knew that you were a closet anti-Trumper, whatever it is. This is the MAGA movement. This is America first. And they're already kind of 
saying, okay, here's the system on this side, which now includes like national review. And then here's Trump over here. Trump is our underdog yet again. We have to support him. And people saying DeSantis is a part of the establishment. I'm like, oh my gosh, I am so not ready for this conversation yet. I'm just not ready for it. What do you think? Well, I, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about all of that, I guess, is is where I would start. Um, so, look, I mean, this effort to paint um, Ron DeSantis as some sort of kind of like rhino establishment lackey, yeah. I, I mean, it's 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 laughable on its face. Um, yeah. I mean, when he when, when he was in U.S. Congress, he joined the House Freedom Caucus on day one. He was always one of the most conservative members in Congress. You know, if I, if I remember correctly, he was actually even kind of an, an, an early advocate for winding down the Afghanistan operation. There have been some questions raised about his foreign policy bona fides. Is he actually just going to be kind of an old school gun toting Lindsey Graham, John McCain style neocon? Well, I mean, if I remember correctly, that's actually really not actually where he comes down in foreign policy, which I think is actually quite encouraging. And, you know, more generally speaking, I mean, the Disney fight is so indicative. I mean, what a chamber of commerce corporate tax cut fetishizing style, yeah. you, you know, supply side Republican ever take on one of the largest employers never. in the state over never, never in a million years. Are you kidding me? I mean, it's it's ludicrous on its face. Um, so I, I this effort is going to fail. Now, having said that, uh, having said that, Ali, I. I am a little concerned, if, if I'm being candid with you, about the extent to which you see a lot of establishment forces, Wall Street Journal, National Review, um, AEI, think tank types, some folks like that that are rallying to DeSantis' side in what they perceive to be this mano a mano Trump versus DeSantis matchup. I, in fact, I'm probably going to write my column this week actually trying to kind of push back against that and basically say, no, you guys are not going to co-opt uh, Governor DeSantis for, for your kind of, um, you know, outmoded supply side corporate chamber of commerce vision, because that's not who he is. That is not the, that is not the politician who he is. And I think for a lot of kind of kind of culture war centric you know, new right, NatCom, whatever you want to call us, style conservatives, we have to kind of get out in front of that before that ball kind of gets a little, um, you know, further downfield. Well, a friend of mine who works at one of those kind of more establishment leaning conservative organizations, but who himself, I think, is more kind of new right leaning, he actually texted me last night and he said, DeSantis has to do something soon that will piss off National Review and the American Enterprise Institute again. He should pick another Disney fight. Maybe maybe it'll be the transgender issue. I'm not sure. But uh, this effort to kind of paint Governor DeSantis as an establishment chamber of commerce, commerce rhino, lackey, I mean, it, it's not going to take hold. It, it, it is just absurd on its face there. And I guess the other thing that's worth pointing out here is Trump indisputably started a movement. He indisputably started the America First movement, kind of this more populist-oriented strand of conservatism, you know, national sovereignty, immigration, trade realism, all the above, right? I mean, kind of a, a, a rebuke of moralistic foreign policy interventionism. And effectively, all of those policies, I think, were for the better. I mean, I really do think that American conservatism substantively is now in a better place because of Trump. That doesn't necessarily mean that Trump is necessarily that, that it doesn't necessarily mean that he is the best person to take it home from here. So he was an earthquake. He was a wrecking ball. He exposed a lot of sclerosis. He exposed a lot of intellectual rot. That doesn't necessarily mean, because of some of the reasons that we've already talked about on the show, that he is the best person to build. He was amazing at destroying and exposing rot. But we have to start yeah. building here. And part of what you have to do to build, I would submit, is to actually advocate and articulate a, a positive, affirmative vision of governance and what it means to live as a sovereign person living in a, in a free state and ultimately a free country. And I think that's actually what Governor Santos has really done here in Florida. And in so doing, he has transformed this state into a red state. The Hispanic vote in Florida went for him by a massive margin. He won yeah. Miami-Dade County, 70-plus percent Hispanic county, by double-digit margins here. I, I mean— First what, time what a he's Republican had won the woman's vote, I think, in, what, 20 years? Um, so there's that, too. And if we're worried, as we said earlier about— Losing independence. I mean, maybe it's I understand what you're saying about not wanting to be seen as the establishment candidate. And he is not. But these organizations that are establishment supporting him might make people think that he is. I understand what you're saying about wanting to piss them off. But at the same time, there are a lot of independents that take their cues from The Wall Street Journal and who do read NRO. And 
who would probably be persuaded that waging the culture wars the way that Ron DeSantis does is actually a good thing. So I'm not so sure that, yeah, maybe to you and me, who were anti-establishment in a lot of ways, but we have to remember, you and I are very online and we like, you know, things that are very online and our normal friends just aren't thinking the same way. They're not reading the same things. And so I don't think it's so bad, at least in my opinion, that he does have some advocates in those arenas. We'll see. We'll see. It'll be an interesting thing to watch play out. Okay, let me tell y'all about Annie's Kit Club, and this would make a great Christmas gift. If your kids are home for the holidays, your young kids, ages about 7 to 13, they're out of school, and you don't want them to spend all of their downtime just playing on their tablets or just watching TV, you want them to spend their spare time doing something that is productive and constructive, helps them with problem-solving skills and their creativity, then you should check out Annie's Kit Club. It's a subscription craft service. They send crafts to your door every month and they've got all different kinds of crafts every month. They'll send you either like a woodworking kit or a STEM project. They've got jewelry making for your girls. Comes with all the supplies and all the instructions that you need. It makes it really easy. Plus they can do these crafts independently. And so if you're trying to get dinner done while keeping your kids entertained, then you should try this out. Go to annieskitclubs.com slash Allie. Get your first month for 75% off. That's annieskitclubs.com slash Allie for 75% off your first month, annieskateclubs.com slash alley. Oh, also another huge benefit. Another huge benefit is that we would greatly appreciate, I think, as a country and benefit from having a president who is under 80 years old. Like, is that so much to ask? I mean, he's under 50 years old. I think he's 40 something. I think that that is a very normal and good age to run for president, not trying to be rude or anything. But I mean, there are fewer and fewer things that you can do well the older that you get. That's just true for all of us. I think that Trump is a very young age, however old he is, 80, whatever. He, I mean, he's way younger, I think, mentally than Joe Biden is. But still, can't we get someone who is, you know, not part of the silent generation? I don't know. That's just my opinion. Yeah, I mean, when can America finally move on from the boomers? Uh, I mean, the boomers have frankly done a lot of damage to America. They've done some good things as well. But, you know, Helen Andrews of the American Conservative has a whole book that she wrote over the past yes, year or so. about. about yeah. Good. Ellen's wonderful. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, her book speaks for itself. I mean, the boomers have done a lot of harm. But nonetheless, America is still a gerontocracy at this point. It is a country governed by old people who happen to be boomers, whether it's Chuck Schumer, whether it's Mitch McConnell, whether it's Joe Biden, whether it's Donald Trump. Joe Biden, by the way, is not a baby boomer. I was just looking this up. He's not a baby boomer. He is actually a part of the silent generation. He is only six years older than my grandmother who died a couple of years ago. And even... Donald Trump, he is right on the cusp. I think Baby Boomer actually starts in 1946, and that is when he was born. So we're not even talking about Baby Boomers. We are talking literally about the people who were born right after the Great Depression, which nothing wrong with him. Nothing wrong with that. We love that generation. But yeah, there are benefits to youth. Well, the silent generation in many ways was actually one of the great American generations. Yes, I mean, those are the folks totally. who, who, you know, who stormed the beaches of Normandy. I mean, those were kind of the true heroes, obviously, right? Well, that was the greatest but generation. It, so there's the there's greatest generation, right. silent generation, baby boomers. Right. But still, silent generation still one of the greatest because they were raised um, in large part by the greatest generation. Um, and so, like, yes, some of the greatest Americans, they tend to be more conservative. That's great. But, man, when you're thinking about, like, what we need, as you said, to build the future, I do think that youth can help. No, totally. I mean, I mean, by, by, by sheer dint of being a younger family, and the DeSantis's are a younger family. I think Governor DeSantis just recently turned 43 or 44, I think 44, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, his wife, Casey, I, I think is like right around the age of 40. You actually, yeah. it wouldn't shock me if she's 39 even. Um, they have three kids that are aged like one, three, and five, or maybe yes. they're two, four, and six, something like that. So they are a very young family. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think I think Governor DeSantis and the, and the First Lady of Florida, Casey, they very much do have their kind of thumb on the pulse of the issues that are resonating. That's kind of what I was saying earlier. I mean, I'm happy to hear that Trump mentioned critical race theory, but I mean, like, what about woke capital? I mean, 
the metastasis yeah. of, of, of private sector America, whether it's big tech, whether it's the Fortune 500, Silicon Valley, Hollywood. I mean, the transformation of the private sector from a one-time ally of the American right to an effective enemy of the American right is one of the most important issues of our time. And it kind of gets to kind of this this fusing of state and corporate power, this public-private sector fusion that I think only kind of a more kind of muscular, frankly, authoritative brand of conservatism is, is capable possibly of breaking that dynamic up. This is the kind of thing that you, I think you have to have your thumb on the pulse of what is happening to be able to see it. And again, at least here in Florida, on, on literally all those issues that I just mentioned, whether it's the big big tech issue, Florida has passed an effective law, whether it's the woke capital issue, Florida has passed an excellent law called the Stop Woke Act. So really just wherever you look, um, you know, I think Governor Santis has it, and that's due in no small part to the fact that, that he is younger. And um, there's no, you know, there's no harm in saying that a country that in many ways, this is our country, the United States, that in many ways, seems to be pretty decadent, that potentially seems to be starting kind of a, a Rome-esque decline, lest I sound a little too black pilled at the moment. Uh, you know, uh, we we really need some youthful energy to kind of steer this ship in the right direction, to turn this thing around here. Yeah. And a doubling down on kind of um, the personalities of the past, let alone those who are kind of very preoccupied with kind of fighting literally yesterday's war or last year's war, doesn't necessarily strike me as the best path forward. Yeah. All right. There's a couple more, uh, more things that I just want to get your thoughts on. Um, up for a vote soon is the Respect for Marriage Act, so-called, in the Senate, passed the House, and they're saying that this is just basically solidifying, codifying Obergefell. Obviously, it goes past that, just like codifying Roe v. Wade would. Um, Alliance Defending Freedom says this, the Respect for Marriage Act threatens religious freedom and the institution of marriage in multiple ways. It further embeds a false definition of marriage in the American legal fabric. Of course, that's the most important, in my opinion, the definition of marriage between a man and a woman is pre-civilizational. Um, it opens the door to federal recognition of polygamous relationships. It jeopardizes the tax-exempt status of nonprofits that exercise their belief that marriage is the union of one man and one woman. It endangers faith-based social service organizations by threatening litigation and liability risk if they follow their views on marriage when working with the government. Now, there has to be 60 votes, so there needs to be 10 Republicans that vote in favor of bringing it to the floor, um, and then it will actually be voted on and decided whether it will be sent to Joe Biden. Uh, what do you think? You think there will be 10 Republicans that vote in favor of bringing this to the floor? Well, let, let me first stipulate that yeah. this is a very bad this is a very bad law. And what, what you read from ADF is accurate. In fact, just before I joined you for this recording, Ali, I was watching a video that the, that the Heritage Foundation put out from my friend Rabbi Yaakov Mankin, who's the, I think the managing director is his title of an Orthodox Jewish organization called the Coalition for Jewish Values, where Rabbi Mankin kind of explains, even from a Jewish perspective, why this bill is, is, is so profoundly harmful. Obviously, from a Christian perspective, it is profoundly harmful as well. And, you know, the one key point to make, and you, and you, and you just got at this, Ali, is it, this isn't just about religious liberty. I mean, that is a massive, massive, massive concern. But by bestowing an imprimatur of legitimacy upon this legislation, any Republican who is complicit in it will also be stamping his or her seal of approval to codifying under U.S. law an erroneous definition of what marriage actually is, a definition of marriage that is directly contrary to the tenets of biblical Judaism or biblical Christianity, and frankly is directly inimical to any concept of marriage that anyone in human civilization would have conceived of prior to roughly 15, 20 years ago. So right. it, it, is a, it, it is a very bad law. Um, what you said about kind of a cause of action and kind of opening the floodgates of litigation is absolutely true as well, and I really hope that it will be defeated. As far as the votes are concerned, you know, look, I mean, we're coming, we're we're now by definition in a, in a lame duck Congress. You have a new Congress coming in come January. Lame duck Congresses are famously hard to predict. The incentive structures are not necessarily aligned properly. You know, well, you have folks like Rob Portman and Pat Toomey. I yeah. guess Rob Portman was 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 always going to support this. You know, it's going to be close. I mean, I think you'll probably get I, I can I'm literally thinking out loud here. I can literally think at, at least five to seven Republicans were going to join. Will, yeah. will they get the, the full 10? I, I guess I'm cautiously optimistic that they will not. But we've obviously been let down before. So um, it's going to be a close call. But if I had to make a prediction on your show, I predict that they probably will fall just short. 
Okay, I have an awesome offer for you from Good Ranchers for Black Friday. They've actually added something to the offer. So previously, I was saying that their Black Friday deal is two free 12-ounce Black Angus New York strips with your order, but now they've added to that. So in addition to that, you also get two free pasture-raised chicken breasts. And not only that, I think this is the coolest part. If you subscribe now, you get that box of meat to your house Every month, you lock in your price for 2023. We all know inflation is out of control. You go to the grocery store. It's more expensive than ever to buy meat. But if you subscribe to Good Ranchers, you pay the same price for all of 2023. You don't have to worry about inflation when it comes to buying your meat. So go ahead and go to goodranchers.com slash alley. You'll get that Black Friday deal. You save a bunch of money when you subscribe. It's all American meat. It's great stuff. We eat it almost every night. You get the two free 12-ounce Black Angus New York strips, two free pasture-raised chicken breasts, and then you lock in your price for 2023. So go to goodranchers.com slash alley. Use code alley, goodranchers.com slash alley. Man, I don't want to seem black-pilled either. And I mean, I guess I'm not because I'm always going to be a hopeful person. And especially as a Christian, there's a doctrine or an idea that we say that our citizenship is ultimately in heaven. And of course, we believe that Jesus is king, ultimately. And so there is hope outside of politics. But because I care about the country in which I've been placed, I care about the state of it. I care. I have an interest in preserving marriage and the family as someone who wants my country to survive and thrive. And you cannot. You cannot survive and thrive without the family as the building block. And if you redefine family outside of what is the natural nuclear family it disintegrates. It causes chaos, especially when you're talking about opening up the door to polygamous marriage and or marriage, so-called. Um, I know a lot of people say, oh, you know, that's a slippery slope. That'll never happen. I don't even think that you can logically call anything a slippery slope. We were not only right about what would happen after Obergefell was decided by the Supreme Court, but we actually underestimated what would become normal as a consequence of the sexual revolution that has been sanctioned in the United States. I don't think anyone would have ever had the imagination in 2015 to talk about Drag Queen Story Hour, and here we are. So, I mean, we already know it's going to open up the door to polygamy. No one ever seems to ask the question, well, where do children fall in all of this? It's always about adults' wishes and our desires and a I I guess the state just doesn't think that they have an interest in protecting the family and children. And that is not only to our shame, but also to our intense detriment. And we will continue to see the chickens come home to roost for years and years to come. I mean, we're already seeing the polygamy issue to an extent, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. there was a there there was a court in New York State. I I can't remember if it was in New York City. I think it was in New York State. I think it was in in the Bronx, if I recall, that, that that gratuitously and superfluously started opining on the legitimacy of polyamorous or however you pronounce that word, polyamorous, whatever it is, uh, on these, you know, three or four party, whatever relationships. I mean, we're, we're, you know, the, the, the more recent thing, even since kind of the slow but steady onset of the polygamy discussion, the more recent thing is kind of the mainstreaming of what they call it, uh, MAPs, minor attracted person, which, you know, once upon a time would have just been called the pedophile. Um, like like that is like the, that's the newest thing we're starting to see large swaths of the cultural left, you know, uh, the intersectionality, LGBTQ lobby or whatever, talk about kind of, um, the, you know, the inherent human dignity of minor attracted people, which is just disgusting. I mean, like, let's just call it what it is. That is awful, awful, awful stuff. You know, a friend of mine, Gladden Papin, uh, a very uh, theologically conservative uh, Catholic friend of mine, he he has jokingly referred to the so-called slippery slope fallacy as the the ironclad rule of the slippery slope with like a little trademark symbol because it never fails. I mean, basically everything that social conservatives have said time and time again since the 50s, 60s, virtually all of it has come true. And, you know, Ross Douthat, actually, the New York Times mm-hmm. columnist, he had a very, very, very good blog post about this years ago. It was back when I was in law school. I think it was in the year 2015. It was kind of as the Supreme Court was building up to the Obergefell litigation, potentially right after that, but it was right around there. If I recall correctly, the title of this blog post was The Wild Ideas of Social Conservatives. And he, and he, he does exactly what I just did. He goes back to the 1960s and basically shows that time and time again, when the cultural left, when elites, when elite institutions dismiss cultural conservatives, social conservatives as talking about the slippery slope, 
time and time again, it comes true. Yeah. And they're in, they're increasingly just out in the open about it, whether it's the polygamy thing, whether it's the minor attracted persons thing there. So, uh, you know, all that's to say that I, I, I strongly agree with you there. But, you know, one thing that I would like to see at, at least some elected Republicans do, some of the conservative think tanks, to their credit, you know, ADF, Heritage, folks like that, so to their credit, what they they are doing. But it'll be nice to see at least one Republican when this bill gets up there um, on the floor for debate, whatever, to actually make a speech about what the definition of marriage is. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice? It kind of gets to what we were saying earlier on the pro-life, pro-life issue. You have to make the arguments. You, you, you can't just hand wave it away. And this is why I very gently pushed back against kind of this over-focus on religious liberty, which is obviously important there. But to an extent, religious liberty is almost like a dodge from the actual debate, which is what is the definition of a marriage here, right? So we have to have at least one person, hopefully, in the Senate Republican caucus who can get on the floor and actually make that case. Uh, Honestly, I would be shocked if we did. I I would actually kind of be surprised if there were a senator who was willing to go out there and defend marriage substantively. I mean, if we had more senators doing that, then this probably wouldn't be a debate. But Republicans love to retreat. And so, I I mean, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. We'll see what happens on that. Obviously, I don't believe that the government has the authority to redefine something that is pre-America, pre-civilizational. You can call it marriage, but it is essentially definitionally not. All right. One thing, one last thing I just want to get your thoughts on because I wanted to make sure that we covered it today. So have you been following this whole Poland missile, Russia, Ukraine? Poland was hit apparently by a missile. We initially thought it was Russia. Zelensky, president of Ukraine, came out and said, yeah, see, look, Russia is attacking NATO ally Poland. Please send us more stuff. But apparently it was Ukrainian missile that hit Poland, not on purpose, but trying to defend itself against Russia. And so it seems like more and more people are realizing, hmm, maybe Zelensky isn't like this hero that we should be lionizing. And I don't know. What do you think about this? Ali, there are a few issues over the past year that I think I've pissed more people off on than on the Ukraine issue. Um, because basically since day one, I have been saying, let's slow down here. Let's pause. Let's actually look soberly at the parties here, and let's most important from an American perspective, figure out what the U.S. national interest is in, in this particular conflict. Um, I, I wrote numerous columns back in March and June, basically kind of questioning the all-out absolutist Zelensky narrative. I had a piece, a, a column about a month ago or so, saying that the U.S. needs to shift course immediately when it comes to Ukraine. And just last week, actually, my friend Jonathan Brunitsky and I co-authored a piece for The Federalist saying that Vladimir Zelensky is no Jewish hero because, you know, as a traditional Jew, it frankly pisses me off to no end that this guy gets there and tries to play the Jew card when it comes to shaming Israel to to provide them extra munitions. And so Zelensky, since day one, has struck me as a profoundly cynical figure. And, you know, I, I, I should stipulate that when it comes to his perspective from a Ukrainian national perspective, it makes all the sense in, yeah. in the world to play fast and loose with the facts to try to draw in NATO. I mean, he has a vested interest in drawing NATO into this conflict. It, it makes all the sense in the world. And it didn't take a genius to see that coming since day one there. And none of this is to say that Vladimir Putin is a bad guy. His his invasion since day one was unjustified. The West probably could have avoided it if they were a little more shrewd when it comes to NATO Isn't and EU. a bad guy. Sorry. Thank you for the. Yeah, no, I think you might have said that. I just wanted to clarify because it like almost sounded like is and I knew you said or meant isn't. So just wanted to clarify. No, no. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, Vladimir Vladimir Putin's a thug. I mean, we should be very clear about that. I mean, Vladimir Putin is not a is not a good person. He obviously does not have the American national interest at heart here. But the point that I have made over and over and over again is that not every conflict can be easily reducible to a World War II paradigm where you have all-out absolutist genocidal Nazi evil on one side and all-out absolutist red, white, and blue rah-rah American patriotism on the other. Not every conflict is 100% evil versus 100% good. It is possible that there are some conflicts that are actually quite complicated and a little more nuanced and more to the point where the U.S. national interest in the conflict is not necessarily as clear as it should be. So, you know, it seems to me like Vladimir Zelensky has yet again gotten caught with his pants down. And if you look at the polls of Republicans who tell pollsters that we're doing too much to support Ukraine, 
that number has shot up over the past few months, as, as I think more Republicans kind of sober up to that fact as well. And I'm, I'm happy to see that. Um, you know, I, I think that some folks are probably are going to tr- probably try to rush through some sort of lame duck massive aid package to Ukraine in this lame duck Congress. I, you know, I hope that Republicans try to try their best to, to slow that down. We, you know, we'll see what happens. Mitch McConnell is, is, is um, very much a part of kind of uh, Zelensky absolutist school of thought, you might say. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, it, it does appear to be the case that uh, that this uh, tragedy that happened on the Polish Ukrainian border was due to a Ukrainian missile effectively misfiring. Um, it seems like NATO has now said that uh, the president of Poland, Duda, has now said that. So hopefully people can just calm down a little bit at this point. And, you know, for, for the love of God, I just hope that this conflict ends sooner rather than later yeah. for for not just the U.S. national interest, but also for Ukrainians and Russians themselves. Yeah, I was glad to hear that it wasn't Russia because people were already talking about World War Three, which they've been talking about for a while. Not that it's a good thing at all that Poland was hit, I think two people died, which is tragic. But obviously, if it had been intentional by Russia, I mean, who knows what U.S. response would have been. Um, So, wow, there's a lot more to talk about. There are a few other questions that I have, but I think that's all we have time for today. And as always, I appreciate your insight. And uh, just a reminder for everyone where they can find you, how they can follow you. Yeah, anytime, Allie. Thanks for having me. So, I run the Newsweek op-ed section, so you can go to newsweek.com slash opinion for our daily output of op-eds. I'm on Twitter at Josh underscore Hammer, and you know you can go ahead and subscribe to my show, which is just called The Josh Hammer Show, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Awesome. Thanks so much, Josh. I really appreciate it. Anytime, Allie. Thank you.